everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mike Todorovic, joined by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. Hi, Michael. Matthew, how are you? Well, we should ask you that question because you've had about 15 different ailments. Yeah, just one. Uh, it was RSV, I'm quite sure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, you also pulled, apparently pulled your external obliques oh, off your... That was bad. Iliac crest or something. Yeah, that was bad. I, uh, I was in the gym at work, Bond University, great gym, world-class gym, did an amazing deadlift session because I'm extremely strong and powerful. And while the listeners are probably sitting there going, Michael, how much did you deadlift? And my answer to that is more than you. Okay, more than you. <laughs> so anyway, I was deadlifting approximately 280 kilograms for reps. Is that true? And No. No, no. I was actually working on, and the people are going to go, oh, good cop out. I was working on slow eccentrics, so I was doing slow negatives. So I, I, it was 100 kilos was the weight I was using, and I was going up and then slow to the ground and then fast up, slow to the ground. Anyway, did a whole bunch of those, did a whole bunch of other back work, uh, and then once the workout finished, I was stretching. And I did that typical stretch where, you, you know, you sit on your bum and you grab your toes sort of thing. And I was doing that and I knew I had to sit down for the rest of the day because I was, this was like six in the morning and I had a big day at work at my desk. So I'm sitting there stretching and I'm like, oh, I've got to stretch my back and lats a lot, otherwise I'm going to get tight. And I sort of like forcefully stretched it and then all of a sudden I felt a, a stretch a and then a, well, no, there was a, there was a squeak out of some cheeks and then there was a, a stretch and a pop and I felt a muscle pop off my iliac crest off the top of my hip. And when it first happened, I went, it didn't hurt. I went, oh, that felt not good. And I said, I better stay warm, keep moving. And then within about 10 seconds, I could barely walk. I hobbled out of the gym. And for about a week, I was rough. And then two days after that, I got RSV. So luckily, that made me I still question the bound. severity of that musculoskeletal injury. Because no, I agree. Because I'm, at, I'm, I'm 100% now, 100%. Because the day after... Pretty sure it was the day after or that night you called me and like said, oh, this is the worst injury of my life. It was. And then it was the next day or maybe the day after your moving refrigerator okay. is off the back of yeah. well, okay. SUVs. So, or yeah. not SUV, a, a ute. ute. 
Yeah, you. So a truck, if for our American listenership or listener. Uh, yeah, so I did that on the Friday, like tore that, well, obviously not a tear, but strained <laughs> that muscle in my back. Felt like a tear. Um, the if next you, day... Listen, listeners, if you don't know yet, Michael is termed a, a hypochondriac. Oh, sorry. I so he's... He's he has like the most serious conditions weekly. Yeah, here we go. I think he's had fifteen MRIs, full body MRIs already. All right, so and I think how uh, many colonoscopies? Um, eight for fun or for <laughs> medical purposes? Um, no, no, I've had two colonoscopies. Okay, yeah, three endoscopies. But anyway, so so every okay, shut up. Let me <laughs> let me finish this story. Every right? every orifice has had a scope up it <laughs> or down it. <laughs> Um, that's, that's, no, there's, there, there's, there's still one that hasn't had a scope in it. So, um, however. We can change that. Prostate's probably enlarging as we speak. Um, maybe not as we speak, but as we age. That's rectum, transrectal. Yeah, but not when you do a TERPS. That's procedure. That's transrectal. No, that's transurethral. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, so anyway. I did that on the Friday, strained my back. Then on the Saturday, could barely move, could barely move. It, it, and when I spoke to you, I said, this is the worst musculoskeletal injury I've ever had. It's true. I've never broken a bone and that is the worst strain I've ever had, right? Convinced that I was going to be like that for weeks. Then that night on the Saturday night, so this is, you know, nearly 48 hours after I, oh no, it was 24 hours after I did the, the tear or the strain, uh, I started to get a temperature and then on the Sunday morning I had a 40 degree fever and that lasted till probably Thursday. Uh, I had 40 degree temps. Energy was pretty good. Back was pretty rough. But then I would say by the time the next weekend came along, my back, which is the weekend that just passed, 100%, and today uh, is Wednesday? Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, and I feel... 100%, except I have this little residual cough. So that's telling you, Matt, I'm very fit and very healthy. And, yes, while I had my 40-degree temp, my fridge broke. And as the fridge broke, I had to go Because you're sitting fridge. in the fridge with your temperature? Well, I had, we just did a food shop and it was expensive. I didn't want to waste food. So I went out and bought a fridge uh, with a 40-degree temperature. Yes, shouldn't have done it. Uh, wore a mask, mind you. I wore a mask so I didn't infect anybody else. Because of your back strain. But no, for the RSV, um, but had to take a fridge off the back of the ute by myself and carry it into the house and then move Over the your shoulders. Fridge. Yeah, one-handed while <laughs> coughing with the other hand. So, yes, you're right. I am a powerhouse. As a bar, I am as a bar fridge. Probably the strongest, toughest human being you've ever met. Um, but, you know, let's, let's not dwell on the fact that I'm better than you in So tell us about today. Oh, yes. What, what we're doing today. Today is, uh, you like to call it the mailbag. Um <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't see things that way. I like to call it listener mail, okay. right? Mailbag is it's old school, man. Colloquial term, yeah, slang term for. Well, we don't have. Uh, does the does the mail person ever even deliver mail in a bag anymore? Do you ever get physical mail anymore, Matt? Yeah, I do. From listeners. Oh, from no. fans. Because there's no mailbag we're emptying on the table here. What we're doing is we're emptying our digital get, bag. I just get trash left at my office door. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I sometimes grab your trash and just open it onto the table and then I sift through all the stuff that you went through that week, figure out what's going on in Matt's family. What I've eaten. So this is our listener mail segment. 
plot. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah, because we're going to go through it. Because at the end of most so compliments and questions. Yes, because not only well, uh, and maybe not just compliments. We might get a couple of negative comments as well, uh, particularly about you and the way that you <laughs> look, look, talk, <laughs> act. So the the reason why we're doing this is because we get a lot. We of, love you. We do love you, and we get a lot of questions. And we feel like at the end of a two-hour episode, we feel like we're not doing these questions justice. And we're maxed out. We're maxed out. Uh, we're exhausted. And to be honest, I don't even know who's listening at the end of a two-hour episode. So we thought let's do maybe once a month yeah. a dedicated episode that answers listener questions. So at the beginning of that if you do have a question for us, please go to our website, drmattdrmike.com.au. There you can send us a listener question or mail, or you can send it directly to us, gubiosciences at gmail.com. That's G-U-B-I-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S at gmail.com and ask us a question or even just, you know, leave a comment. Uh, and we will read it out and answer it in a future episode. Now, we need to clarify something at the beginning here. We're not answering any medical questions in regards to we cannot give advice. We are not qualified to give you advice, nor are we eth- uh, feel legally or ethically obligated to do so. But what we can do is we can take your questions and we can discuss the anatomy, physiology, the way that the human body works work off first principles associated with those questions. So we're not going to answer your personal questions. You need to see your primary physician for that, right, Matt? I agree. But we can go through the way the human body works. Yeah, we can talk generalities around the question. Yes, we can. Uh, Now, the very first question we have here, or do you want to go first? I'm going to say uh, the first Thank you. Sure. Is from Julio. Julio. And or I think Julio. J U L I O. I would say Julio. Okay. So where's Julio it, from? Doesn't say. Oh, okay. Uh, in this particular email, uh, it was referring to a video of one of ours, which I think is yours. So right. it's the video of the eye. The YouTube videos. Yeah. Yep. So Julio said, or oh, Julio, I just watched. Uh, Did you say I with (laughs) E-Y-E? I just saw Ah, a video of yours with a basic eye anatomy and loved the meticulous way that you explain the anatomy of the eye. Thank you. We wish you all the best in this world. Oh, how nice. We wish you the best the world can offer. Wow, that's even better. So I'm glad that you went back. Clarified that. Yes. So I think that first part was to you, the second part was to me. I think it's all to me. Uh, Julio or Julio, thank you so much. Uh, I do need to redo the eye episode because it's old and I did it in an old office on a tiny whiteboard. Uh, I think it's time to redo. First question. First question. This is from uh, Maya Mia or Maya Mia or Mama Mia. No, it's Maya Mia. Uh, Hello, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. I'm an NNP student. Do you know what that stands for? I think a nurse practitioner, is that yes. right? I don't know what the second N is, but that's okay. I'm an NNP student, first semester, and I'm in serious trouble. I need your help. Oh, no. Okay. I do not know how to study effectively. I've tried everything. I do okay on my exams, but soon after taking the exam, I cannot really recall what I just learned. I'm taking too long to study and end up just doing what everyone else does, writing word by word what the professor says during lectures and creating a study guide. 
I feel like I'm running out of time when I study and cannot keep up. I like writing things by hand, but it takes too long. Additionally, I'm unsure how to select the content I need to study, so I feel I have to memorise every detail in the lecture. I want to learn to help my future patients and see them get better. I do not know how. I also tried to find a good study partner, but everyone seemed as if they just wanted to pass the test and were willing to work ahead of, unwilling to work ahead of time. So I know I'm on my own. Could you guide me on how to study for med school? Thanks in advance for all your help. By the way, I hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving, Bayer. So this is a little bit, little bit old. Uh, from November. October. So we apologise, Mayor, for... November, yes. November. So, yeah, we apologise for the delay, um, but we wanted to give you the time to be able to give you an adequate answer. Now, I'm just going to cough because I cannot stop. R- <coughs> so RSV. I do apologise about that. That's my RSV. So if I do cough, I do apologise. I'll try and do it off mic. I can't reach the mute button or the cough button. Do you want to begin with this or me? Because I've got a number of strategies. Tips. Yeah, heaps of strategies that yeah. will help, that I know will help. Okay. What do you usually say? So Matt and I, we have taught thousands and thousands of university students over the years. And I would say, I would love to know your perspective. Most students are in Mayer's position. Yeah. Like Mayer's position is the most common position for a student to be in, particularly within the first year. Uh, so I always say that studying is an art form. Yeah. Yeah. And... An art form that you have to personalise, individualise to figure out what's best for you. Absolutely. The first part of the the email or the first part of the question was a bit more about transitioning from like a surface level Mm. understanding to a deeper. So I think that's something that we could talk about quickly. Yep. But then there's the second part of the question, which is more about effective, efficient study approaches. And I have to say, Maya, that the fact that you already want to study with your patient in mind, as so studying to upskill as opposed to study to assessment, already puts you ahead of your fellow students. Mm. Because studying to assessment will not necessarily make you a better clinician because that then just basically turns you into a regurgitation machine. Yeah. Uh, you wrote memorize and you won't solidify concepts in a way that will be applicable to your patients at the end of the day. So uh, for me, there's a couple of things that you can do, but where would you like to start? Well, the first thing I'll just say is with your brain, Mine? which, or, <laughs> which, which or ours, or colloquial. colloquial. Okay. Or, the rural way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, was that I would say your brain is generally a lazy organ. Okay, so you are talking. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily want to work hard and it oh. doesn't necessarily want to retain things if it doesn't need to. Yeah. So I do want to, you know, preface here that even if you learn something really well, if you're not utilising it ongoing in an ongoing fashion or yeah. you haven't used it for a long, long time, it's probably going to disappear regardless of how well you learned it in the, the beginning, right? Yeah. And uh, I can talk from my own experience there that I haven't really taught anatomy deeply for at least 10 years mm. and I have noticed and I, I learned it relatively well and I knew a lot of detail to it when I taught it regularly. But because I haven't really gone down that path for a long time, all the finer detail yeah. you forget. Of course. You can pick it up a lot quicker once you you know, readdress it. it. But 
it's something your brain will let go if it's not being utilized. So that, there's that aspect of it. But what I will say, again, the front end of your question is that you need to be able to do things with the information better than at a, surp- at a surface level. Yeah. So this is what we refer to as the Bloom's taxonomy mm-hmm. in education speak. And this is just a a spectrum of things that you do with information. We'll put it up on the screen if you're yeah. watching the YouTube video. And so if we were wanting with our students to do simple things with information like just recall, that's just really knowing a fact and being able to regurgitate it and, you know, recall it back, yeah. repeat it it's back. it's rote memorisation. So that's rote and it's not a deeper level. And in that case, you're probably going to forget it much quicker. Yes. And this could be anything, you know, like what are the 12 cranial nerves and the way you learn it is just by a song, yeah. a mnemonic. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a, a relatively good way of learning it because I think musics and songs, they can integrate better in your memory than just words and whatever, right? Mm. But if you, as an educator, and I'm talking myself here, if you were to utilise the cranial nerves and get a student to analyse or evaluate or create even or engineer something um, by them learning the information and then doing something deeper with it, like making something with it, it's going to stay deeper in their memory bank for longer periods of time. Yes. And so it also depends on how you're using that information to integrate within to your memory. Yes. So so that moves you from that surface learning to a more Deeper. Deeper. But that does take time because you need to first understand, you need to retain, and then you need to do things with it. Yes. And that takes skills and... That's right. And I would say... Sorry, did you... Well, all I would add there is because as a student, presumably you're undergraduate... You don't have first a huge year, first semester. You don't have a huge amount of time no. to do all those deep things with it. So this is just where you when you come to your study uh, timetable, you just have to be very organized and have the ability to know what needs to be done when and so forth. So that makes it difficult to do those deeper approaches. Yes. So what what I would say, uh, and to begin, I want to quote Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington stated that without commitment, you'll never start and without consistency, you'll never finish. Mm. And I think that's important. And I think that you have commitment, uh, but it's the consistency that's important because like I said, studying is an art form and like all art forms, it's time on task that gets you better at them. So you need to practice studying. And when I say practice studying, you said that you, you know, because you don't know what to do, you don't know how to do it properly. You know, and you're sitting there trying to write what the lecturer or professor is saying verbatim. Yeah. It's not going to work. It will not work. So what I recommend, and this is what I tell my students, is feel free to not have a pen and paper with you throughout the whole lecture. Just make sure that you're present in that moment during the class. You're present. You're paying attention. You're listening. If something doesn't make sense, you ask a question and get it clarified but really don't worry about writing anything down in the moment. After the lecture, however, immediately after the lecture, get a pen and paper and write down everything you remember. Now, what you're going to find is it will be impossible to write it verbatim, but you will write bullet points. You will write, okay, uh, they spoke about this and this concept and this is how it worked 
and you are forced to interpret it from your own understanding. And what you're going to find is that out of, let's just say, a one-hour lecture where they spoke about 50 things, you'll write down five things and that's okay because what it tells you is that there's five things you know and there's 45 things that you don't know and it gives you something to focus on for the next step, those 45 things. Now, when it comes to what you do, you re-watch the lecture and again, you can pause if it's recorded. You can watch our YouTube videos, for example. You watch it, you pause it and you write your notes from your memory. You write what you remember them saying through your own internal voice and you need to use multimodal forms of expression. Don't just write things down. Say things out loud. Don't just write things and say things. Draw things, all right? Don't just write things, say things, draw things. Imagine things. Think of analogies that can explain those things. So if you start to use your brain in a way that can demonstrate or take the information you've just learnt and present it to yourself or somebody else in multiple ways, you know it. And what you end up doing is highlighting what you do and don't know. One of the things I love to tell my students to do is once you've learned something, go find somebody, sit them down and tell it to them, teach it to them. And what you're going to find very quickly is what you know and what you don't. They're going to ask you questions and you go, I don't know that. There you go. There's an area of research that you need to go and fill that gap. Mm. But there'll be areas that you do know. The other thing, and this speaks to what Matt was saying about over time, is you need to space your study. You can't just do one block of study for a topic and then you move on to the next thing and never touch upon that topic again until the exam. It won't work. That's how it goes into short-term memory. So what you need to do is space it. So what I personally do, because Matt and I still study, we have to study because we can't just memorise all these things forever, right? So I will read something. I will then write it in my own words. I'll then draw it and then I'll go for a walk and then I'll come back and I'll do it again or I'll go to the gym and I'll come back and do it again or I'll do it again the next day and then the next day and then the next day and then it's there. And that spacing and the good thing about exercise is the release of cortisol you get is actually great for long-term memory. It's crappy for short-term but it's really good for long-term. So exercise can actually help yeah, I think it's, I think exercise has a, has a million uh, yes. benefits within your studying regime. Yes, you know, it obviously gets you out of that space, gets your mind free, puts lots of blood around the body. Yeah, and all the neurobiology of the exercise yeah. and the growth factors and neural factors and so forth would be highly beneficial for neuronal activity and memory and so forth. So my summary personally would be write it in your own words. Don't just write it but draw it. Don't just draw it but say it. Don't just say it but imagine analogies that you can use to explain it. Uh, Space it out and be consistent with the study. You must set aside time to do the study. Don't say I'm going to set aside five hours to do this. Set aside 30 minutes and then take a 15-minute break. Yeah. Right? Anything else you well, like to Well, I've just written a few things down as yep. you've been talking. Oh, okay. And so, I th- again, there's different approaches and different things you can do for different, you know, uh, the, the things that you're doing when you're studying, right? Mm. So the thing you spoke about at the start with how do you take the notes. Yeah. So I think everything that you 
we're just talking about is being active in that process. So this could be active listening, yep. but also active reading. So when you're reading, let's say, a journal article, you aren't just copying it out. No. You are making notes, highlighting, doing things with it as you read. When you're in a lecture, you're actively listening, right? Yep. And so you're doing more than just being passive in that process. And then when you're making your notes, you listed a whole things, but there could be could also be other ways that you take your notes. And one example that we give our students is the Cornell oh, yeah. method, That's a great which method. is, again, just a, a different way to segment the information that you are learning. Again, when, when you're making your notes, I think it's important, instead of just saying, I'm going to memorise or copy everything that the professor did in the lecture, I think yeah. it's better to base it around a learning outcome and make sure you understand well from your educator what they expect from you from a, a lecture or a session based on learning outcome. Yep. And then particularly, say, with the Cornell method, the whole sheet of paper is based around a learning outcome, which could be something yeah, like, um, I don't know, the conductive pathway of the uh, the heart. Yeah. So that's the learning outcome. And so your notes is based around that. Yeah, a, a part of your study... Uh, there is responsibility on your teacher, on your professor, on the academic to help guide that. Yeah, and they like should be assessing you outcomes. and they should be assessing you based on the learning outcome. So Correct. it should be explicit around that. If they don't have explicit learning outcomes, you, you need, need to, to ask yes, them. Yes, that's right. What are the explicit learning outcomes for this class or this topic? And if they go, ah, you just got to learn about the nervous system. Yeah. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's not good right. enough. That's, that's not their a, obligation that's not, on you. Not a good educator. A couple other things. Then you also spoke about understanding. And again, this is a deeper level of learning or understanding uh, memory and so forth. Now, the teach others approach is great. It's my favourite. Because that does demonstrate you've understood it well enough for, the, for them to understand it. Lucky for us, we are going to teach all the time. The other approach that I like to use, particularly in, say, pathophysiology, but also it's good in pharmacology, is concept mapping. And that is not just writing information down, but you're integrating in a way that you understand where all the processes fit together to produce other things like signs and symptoms. And so it's understanding processes, physiology in different arrangements. Yeah. And that requires understanding to put that, to construct a concept map. Yeah. Then we go to practice through recall. So this is still an important part of your study. Again, some good examples here would be in pharmacology, when you're learning drugs. It sometimes gets to the point where you've understood it enough, but you still just need to practice and practice to retain it. Mm. And I think for pharmacology especially, flashcards are very good. And this is just where you have on one side the name of the drug, on the other side you have mode of action, side effects, things like that. And that, again, you're just practicing and practicing and practicing yeah. until it's so familiar. Um, and then, yeah, just utilise and practice formative questions, activities, so it's just ongoing. And then lastly, sorry. That's okay. Lastly, I spoke a lot. Your turn. Lastly, you have your study regime. Yeah. And that, I think, should be centred around a timetable. Yeah. This, this is especially important when you're getting close to your your exam period. Yeah. You should set a timetable. 100%. What, how much am I doing per day? But around that day, you set it, you, know, you, you may say, for the whole day, 
I'm doing six to eight hours worth of study, let's say. Yeah. But it needs to be broken up into different parts, really right? Does. So you need to make your timetable. You need to have breaks. You need to do things like exercise. You need to have good sleep. <coughs> you need to eat well. <coughs> and the, the thing you spoke about spacing or chunking is about, you know, you learn. Chunking. Yeah. That's you else. learn chunks of information. Oh, yeah. But then you give yourself time to process mm-hmm. and then you come back. So... You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then finally, oh, okay. And, then, so and, and I'll end you here. Got this, Maya. It's only just a couple of things that we suggest. <laughs> and then finally, technology. You need to think about what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah. Um, I would be careful with your technology when when you're actually at the study point where you're really trying to integrate it deeply. In, I would try to remove the distractions. Agreed. So phone is away or turned off or whatever because every time it beeps makes noises whatever it's pulled you out of that deepness and so but can i also add as somebody with adhd me uh there is uh we get distracted very easily as you know as probably the listeners are aware that i get distracted very easily uh but there, it, we get distracted easily not because we're necessarily bored with what's happening around us, uh, but there's a part of our brain that really requires constant uh, sort of distraction and interest. And there's a way that you can, you know, there's a way that you can sort of uh, fulfil that part of the brain's need. And I'm being very generalistic here. And I listen to what's called brown music. Have you heard of brown music? I've heard white. Yeah. I've heard grey. Yeah. Brown. Yeah. So, so what's it, we're playing in the bathrooms? Um, so I, I no no. So it's not it's not the fact that I've just put a, a, a recorder in your bathroom. <laughs> no, um, I mean like the music that you hear in like a, a public toilet. But I will. Oh, I probably can't play any music, can I? I can't play any music on YouTube. Yeah. It's not going to work. Um, but there is brown music. I. Is it music or noise? It's noise. Okay. Brown noise. Sorry, it's called brown noise. Um, (laughs) So white noise is just like... Yes, brown noise is is different to white noise. It's more probably humming-based, but it allows it personally... I can focus a lot better with it. Okay. Because it, it minimizes my distractions but also sort of fulfills a part of my brain's need to uh, to be distracted which iron which paradoxically allows me to focus. Okay. Maya, I hope that all this information helped. Um, we're sorry about the delay. Hopefully this information hasn't come too late, but hopefully it does help others. Well, it sounds like you've got a, a, a long study road ahead. Very true. <laughs> so keep <laughs> which us we updated. Wish you, which we wish you the best with it. We do. And if there's anything that works for you, please get back to us on it and yeah, Give feedback. Uh, Matt, what do you got? You can read this one. So, uh, Blathen, we've got an email from Blathen saying, thought I would blow air on the fires of your egos <laughs> and say how great ye are. I don't know if that is supposed to be ye, and I hope that Blathen is a medieval knight. Um, <laughs> and so I can say, thought I'd blow air on the fires of your eagles and see how great ye are. That's more of a pirate. Pirate. Okay. Half pirate, high Scottish. Blathen's a Scottish. pirate. <laughs> Scottish um, pirate. <laughs> uh, just so you know, uh, Matt doesn't have an ego, but I've decided to take his, so I've got double the amount of ego. So I 
Thank you for that, Blayden. I listen to your podcast on Spotify and I find them very interesting. It's a great study recap and your personality helps to see. See how it said personality and not personalities? So obviously yeah. it's just directed yeah. at me. Yeah. And your personality, which I assume is Mike, helps to keep them entertaining. In particular, I find the longer episodes more interesting. Me too, uh, but this is just, uh, you know, the, the short form people are enjoying, the A to Zs. Uh, if you get the chance, I would really appreciate it if ye did. Now, I wonder if <laughs> ye is a part of the vernacular of Blathen, of where Blathen is, but that's okay. Uh, if you did a podcast on proteins and enzymes, well, we are, Blathen, firstly, thank you so much for that email. Uh, we are going to be doing an episode on proteins and enzymes because we got a grant from the Biochemical Society and we're going to be doing a whole podcast on proteins and enzymes. Uh, when that is, it will be coming up soon. Might be too long. No, it won't be too long because we've got to get it done. Um but Blayden, thank you so much. Now, I, got, I got one quick one. Oh, okay. This yes. is from Andrew. Yep. So, hello from Canada. I'm a primary care paramedic from Saskatchewan. So, from Saskatchewan. Yep. Saskatchewan. You know where I heard the? Where did you? Now I don't know if you're like me. I watched a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons when I was little. A lot of Bugs Bunny. Mm. And I think the very first time I heard the word Saskatchewan... Didn't Bugs Bunny just have a 70, 70th birthday or something? Really? Yeah, anyway, keep uh, going. Was a, that's, that's one old rap. No, that was, that was Donald Duck. Oh, okay. That's, that would have came first, right? Donald. Mickey Mouse did come. Mickey Mouse. Sorry, Mickey Mouse. Are these all Warner Brothers? No. Okay. Mickey Mouse is Disney. Disney. See? Oh, my God. Warner Brothers were the funny cartoons and Disney were the unfunny cartoons. Okay. Um, and I think everyone would agree. But Saskatchewan, the first time I heard it, I'm quite sure it was on a Looney Tunes cartoon where I feel like it was Daffy Duck saying Saskatchewan. Anyway, Saskatchewan, didn't know it was a real place. Well, that was, that was worth the interruption. I think it was. Anyway, go on. Uh, so I'm a, <coughs> a primary care paramedic from Saskatchewan <coughs> currently using your podcast to help study to be an advanced care paramedic. That's nice, awesome. Nice, I wonder if... Andrew, you listened to our podcast with Sandy. Yeah, Sandy Macquarie. Who was also, or is, a paramedic from Canada. Canada. Not, not Saskatchewan. No, where was he from? <laughs> I think it was up near Anna Green Gables Island. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway. Like Newfoundland or something. Wasn't it around there? Newfoundland? Newf well, I'm not even going to bother. I don't know. Go on, go on. While driving and working, it amazes me how much high quality and diverse content you guys have. Thank Thanks you. for all your hard work. You both work well together and are entertaining. Wow. Thank you, Andrew. See, we do work well together. No matter how much you bully me and tease me, people think we work well. You know, I, I sit back <laughs> and I take it. I take the abuse. I take the horrible things that Matt says to me. So, Andrew, I appreciate that. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we've got a question here from Dominic. Uh, Dominic says, hi, I just watched your excellent YouTube video on alcohol dependence and withdrawal. That's another old video I did. I reckon that's about six years old. We explain how over time your body increases the glutamate receptors in response to alcohol. I was wondering if you know if the brain can rebalance the receptors once the alcohol has been withdrawn and how long it takes. For context, I'm not an alcoholic, but have drunk regularly without a break, and I think my body has altered the GABA glutamate balance and is affecting my sleep massively. I can easily go without alcohol without suffering any major withdrawal symptoms other than a bit of insomnia. So I was wondering if I were to cut it out completely for a while, then would my brain rebalance back to how it should be? If so, how long should I go teetotal for? And I'm not planning on going back to drinking so regularly. Many thanks for your help, Dominic. That's a great question. Mm. So 
Can I just quickly recap what that episode, that YouTube video was about? Sure. So in the video, I spoke about alcohol uh, dependence and what happens within the body physiologically with that dependence. Do you want to define dependence for us quickly? Well, I was just going to ask you that question. So is dependence... So when people use the term alcoholic, does that just mean that, alcohol dependence? I would say so. I'm not a psychiatrist, which I think that probably fits within that realm. Yeah. But yes, there would be a degree of physiological, anatomical, psychological change that has occurred, which makes somebody dependent upon that drug. Okay, so... Basically, when we talk about alcohol here, we're referring to ethanol. Ethanol. So ethanol is a chemical that would then be put into your blood yep. because it is um, fat-soluble. It has the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier And affect effectively. multiple tissues, including those of your brain, yes. So once it goes into your brain, the ethanol then has neurobiology effects, so impacting Global. Re- receptors also neurotransmitters. Yes. And so this is the way that the neurons communicate amongst each other, right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's complex. It's ex- the neurobiology yes. of, of alcohol is extremely complex. But if we were to oversimplify it um, to a point in which it's still accurate but probably misses a couple of Yeah, I mean, know, like points, this, this right? would be an academic area of... Research. Oh, yes. Ongoing still, by the way. That's right. So this would require people who have done PhDs and their whole life of research. Yes. Just within this space. So we are are doing generalisations here. You would say that when you ingest alcohol, that one of the physiological effects that you get, which I assume is the reason why people drink it, is the depressive effects it has on your nervous system. Now, when I say depressive, I don't mean depression. I simply mean the fact that it sort of dampens down excitability. So we'll say inhibition. And we hear the term, it's an inhibitor or it... What's the term that we constantly hear with alcohol? It gets rid of your inhibitions. Yes. But I think that com- makes it more complex. Because if you say it gets rid of inhibitions... Which is actually incorrect. Yeah. So let's not say that <laughs> at all. Let's just say that what it does is this. In the brain, we have certain neurotransmitters. Some are excitatory, some are inhibitory. Some do both depending on where we are in the brain. But globally, there are, uh, is a neurotransmitter that you could probably just say is broadly in, uh, inhibitory. And that's called GABA. What does it stand for, Michael? Uh, GABA is... Uh, <laughs> gamma. Gamma. Amino buric acid. Yeah, that's it. Um, but what it basically does is when GABA as a neurotransmitter binds to a neuron... To its receptor. To its receptor on a neuron, it basically tells that receptor to not send a signal. That's its inhibitory effect. What alcohol does is it increases the amount of that GABA neurotransmitter. Yeah, right. or, or it's synergistic, so it just makes it work more effectively. Yes, yeah. but let, let, again, let's, I just want to, okay, to make yep. it simple for everybody. Let's just do this simple part first, and then if you want to make it more complex, let's no, do no, that, right? No, really. So you take, you drink alcohol, you have more GABA neurotransmitter. It means that you have more of an inhibitory effect on your neurons, and that's that depressive effect that happens for the nervous system. One of so the could you talk? We drink it. So could you talk about just briefly what kind of centres may have inhibition? Well, uh, if you can, 
Oh, look, there's multiple centres, but you can think about centres that are associated with emotion. So you could think about uh, things like the amygdala. You can think about um, other limbic centres in addition to the amygdala. You can think about centres associated with memory like the hippocampus. You know, sort of yeah, suppresses so or dampens those areas. So some other good examples, and you would see this effect after drinking alcohol, you know, have an effect on the cerebellum, so coordination. Yeah. So the inhibition there is you have a, a lack or a reduced ability to do motor functions. But I'm not sure if that's due to GABA, just to com- okay. make it more complex. But you would have brainstem issues yeah. or effects. You would also have hypothalamus changes. So this is, you know, where alcohol in the early phase would be beneficial to sleep. Well, I shouldn't say beneficial. It, it produces sleepiness, yeah. but doesn't necessarily mean the quality of sleep, but also probably its effect on the sympathetic nervous system is to kind of bring you down in, yes. what's the word, not mood, but just relax you, right? Yeah. So heart rate slows, blood pressure probably goes down a bit. That's why I just and, say the yeah. depressant effects, yeah. Yeah. right? All right, so it increases GABA and you get those d- d- nervous system So that's one, that's one kind effects. of neurotransmitter effect, yeah. Yes, what it also can do is it can inhibit or dampen glutamate. Now, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter, and that makes sense because if you're, in, if you're dampening or inhibiting that neurotransmitter, then you have more of a depressive effect. But here's the thing. Our body loves homeostasis, staying in balance, and GABA and glutamate are utilised for a multitude of functions within the body, and it knows the quantity it needs for the tasks at hand. Now, a neurotransmitter is only as good as the amount of receptors it has to bind to. So if you drink alcohol and you increase the amount of GABA, well, the body tries to balance that out by decreasing the amount of GABA receptors. So it it says, oh, my God, we've got so much of this. We don't need as many receptors. Let's just cut them back a bit. So it's, it's its way of lessening that effect. But then if you're also dampening the amount of glutamate, It goes, we don't have enough glutamate. Let's increase the amount of available receptors to try and increase its effect. But if if you're constantly drinking alcohol, these changes that the body makes to try and maintain homeostasis, they're not being met because you're still boosting the GABA, still dampening the glutamate, and those receptors are still trying to balance things out. And then when somebody quits alcohol, particularly if they're dependent upon it and these you know, plastic changes have occurred because the brain is has neuroplasticity, so these changes have occurred to try and maintain balance. Let's now say you cut the alcohol out. Now you don't have the high levels of GABA. GABA levels go back down to normal, but now you've got normal GABA levels, which are lower than what they've been with alcohol, combined with low GABA receptors. So now you have low inhibition, Right. Combine that with the glutamate now, you don't have the dampening effect of glutamate, so glutamate bumps up, plus you've got heaps of glutamate receptors, so now you've got this excitatory, this overall excitatory effect. And the problem that this can have is if you've, the, the nervous system doesn't like to be overly excited because seizures can occur hmm. from this. You can have, and because glutamate's used in a whole range of functions, you can have an, a, a range of gross neurological effects 
as well, right? So these aren't just physiological, but they can be psychological as well. But you can think about the other physiological effects down straight, you know, so you can think of things like anxiety and, and depression and irritability and fatigue and tremors and palpitations and, and difficulty and so, sleeping. And, 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 and I think so a lot forth. of those go, at least in the early stages, go hand in hand with becoming, you know, that that sympathetic activity being kind of too dominant, let's say now. Mm. And so then you have the sleeping issues, you have the sweating, you have the heart rate, you have your blood pressure, the agitation, all those kind of things in the early stages of uh, withdrawal, let's yes. say. So we're talking about withdrawal from a dependence, right? Yeah. Now, uh, The only other thing I was going to mention a bit earlier, yeah. the other neurotransmitter that probably plays a big role is that ethanol also has an effect on opioid receptors, yeah. which then feeds into serotonin and dopamine, which are reward centres, yeah. which gives you probably the euphoria of drinking and the maybe uh, depend not the dependence, what's, what's the word, addictive properties of it yeah. maybe, and that also adds to the dependence on the alcohol. And as you were saying, people who then drink at set periods their body becomes dependent on the, the ethanol at that time. Yeah. So if you are a person, let's say, that regularly has your alcohol, you know, when you finish work, come mm-hmm. home, have a beer, have a wine or whatever, your body has predicted this to happen. It goes, mm-hmm. oh, you know, 6.30 every night I'm going to get... I get a signal. Therefore, I'm now becoming dependent on this as part of my homeostasis. So if I don't get it... Maybe not dependent because that might be too strong of a term psychotherapeutically, but maybe reliant. Yeah. Yeah. So all those things that you said that if if it's not being met, then you start to have these withdrawal-like symptoms Mm. and then the body's seeking out, we need this just to function normally. Yeah. And that's part of the dependence is just being, just, this is a bad term, but just feeling normal requires that drug yeah. to be present. Yes. So just to operate a baseline now. So now the question from Dominic is if I were to stop drinking alcohol, could could these neuroplastic changes that have happened in my brain or potentially happened in my brain, because again, we don't know how much alcohol somebody has drunk and we also don't know how their brain has responded to that degree of alcohol, right? So Matt and I, we don't have that information with us. But working off first principles, you could say that, well, the, the brain is plastic. It has the ability to change. It had the ability to change upon exposure to the alcohol and it would have ability to change upon withdrawal from the alcohol. Now, the question is not about whether it can change. It's about the degree of change that can occur. And a lot of that has to do with how, um, so when you uh, perform a particular task, right, if I were to, uh, let's just say, play the piano once, the neuronal pathways that I would need to enact in the right particular order, I've only used them once in that particular moment. I can't say that I now have solidified that pathway to be able to play the piano. Skill acquisition in this context of playing the piano happens over time. The more you do it, the more those pathways work and the more they solidify in their wiring. And if you do it so many times, it's there. And in a way, you could recognise it as being a, a, a solidified circuit, right? Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? 
I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Sometimes this is called muscle memory, right? Yes. Now... This is the context of a skill acquisition. Yeah. We're not talking about a skill here. We're talking about alcohol dependence and, and withdrawal. But I would say working off similar, those pr- principles, principles yeah. that if you are, again, there's an intervention and that intervention is a drug in this case, not a, not a skill that you're practicing. But if you're constantly exposing it to it, you're going to be solidifying certain types of wiring and effects. Not saying that they can't be undone, but the degree of that wiring and the effect uh, it, it would be impossible for us to say to what degree it could be reversed, for example. But, does that, does that yeah. make sense? But in theory, it, it can be. Yes, yes. In terms of the plasticity of the brain, that yes. it has the capacity to, to adapt to changing conditions. Mm. So in theory, it can have the ability to go back. But as Mike said, the degree to which there's too many de- you know, dependents, we just don't know. Yeah, and I think it's important to say that the evidence uh, is pretty strong now that there is no safe dose of alcohol that in regards to uh, drinking it... um, uh, For benefits. For benefits. So obviously everything has... Uh, has a dose response. So, you know, you could say, what if I had a thimble full of 10% ethanol, right? That's going to have negative effects. Well, I mean, measurable, probably not. But the point is that from all the publications, uh, social drinking or drinking alcohol in the form in which it's presented through beer, wine, whatever, you know, the standard drinks, there is no safe or beneficial um, level of Alcohol, even one standard drink a week, for example, is not beneficial to you. In actual fact, it can be a negative, right, detrimental. And that's what the studies are are showing. But obviously alcohol has been part of our lives for centuries, nay millennia, um, and our bodies have become, uh, well, depending on where you are in the world, for example, we have alcohol dehydrogenase that helps break it down, but not everyone has that because not everyone has been exposed to alcohol over time. So certain Indigenous populations who didn't need alcohol for drinking because many people drank alcohol because it was the only safe form of water because the alcohol destroyed the, the fermentation process and the ethanol destroyed the bacteria, so they had drinking water. However, the percentage of alcohol was lower. So low, yeah, yeah. Right? However, Which I think the, like in, in the UK they just had lager or something just as... Yeah, even the kids were drinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, the, but certain Indigenous populations had clean drinking water supplies. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't need the alcohol dehydrogenase, which means they can be susceptible to the toxic effects of alcohol ingestion in the form of ethanol ingestion. So 
we're not all made equally in, in yeah. this sense and our ability to tolerate the toxic effects of alcohol. There is one, at least one condition I know that is irreversible with brain changes from alcohol mm. and that's, uh, what is it, Wernicke, Kortikoff, where I think that also is tied up to a thiamine, which is a B vitamin deficiency. Yes. And they, there's kind of a spectrum there as well that... I think in the early phases it's more of an encephalopathy, which is just a brain process condition. Yeah. But then once it gets to a certain point, there's actually permanent damage. Yeah. But I think that's more tied into thiamine. What's that? B1? Is that B1? Mm, you're testing me now. I did a whole video on it. And I, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's B1. Yeah. And then I think that's part of the treatment for alcohol withdrawing is utilising B vitamins or B vitamin complex because that's part of the carbohydrate met- metabolism, yeah. particularly in neurons. But that can be an re- irreversible state that then your brain is changed and there's not a huge amount that can be done. And that Yeah, we can't it, undergo glycolysis in the Krebs cycle without our B vitamins. And I think that causes – I remember Dr. Carl talking about this. He had a, had a patient that had – this Wernicke Kortikoff syndrome, and they Korsakoff? something like that, had um, Korsakoff, yes, yeah, um, had like literally two memories left. What do you mean? Oh, of their whole left. life. Oh gosh. So not, they couldn't remember remember anything else. So if he asked the patient, "Tell me some memories," the only memory that I think he said. So you get retro and um, antegrade. Yeah. So that's amnesia. forgetting behind or forgetting yeah. what's happening. I think the only memory that, that they had was something about a snake wow. leaving the front gate and that was it. And so this is from alcohol abuse? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But that's just, I'm just pointing out, there are some structural changes that can be irreversible, yeah. but then so obviously... Dominic yeah. said how long? We don't know. Um, this is a question that probably would need to be asked to a uh, psychiatrist or uh, particularly a with drug health specialist. Yeah. Um, they they would probably know, but I would say it depends on the level of dependence, the quantity of alcohol that's been ingested, yeah. and you know there's there's some individuals who are so dependent on alcohol that they they must be observed when they withdraw from their alcohol because of how dependent the body is on alcohol. Right. So anyway, Dominic, thank you so much. I hope that great, helped. Great question. Um, great question. Matt, what have you got uh, for us in regards to Do we have any, uh, any feedback? Yeah, so there's a question from Shannon here. Yep. No, not a question, a feedback from okay. Shannon. Just dropping a line to say I'll be keeping checking this page as I completely appreciate all the information you've posted. So she would have made a post on our website. Oh, cool. And... We have promised, we haven't done it yet, oh. we have promised that we will um, start creating some courses. Yes, we will. But that will be at least one course this year. Yes. That's at least my goal. Yep. So and it's my goal to support your goal. <laughs> back to Shannon. You guys are amazing and your approach has allowed me to consolidate so much, so many, should I say, unclear concepts. Thank you. I will participate in anything you offer. I'm a nurse practitioner at the moment but trying to get into med school. Awesome. Thanks, so, 
All the best, Shannon. Thank you for your feedback. And we will do our best to get something on there for you. Fingers crossed we're going to get something done this year uh, and our aim is to produce. And our aim with these short courses available uh, via our website, hopefully this year, uh, they're going to be, again, short courses. So this, our aim isn't to create these 10-hour-long courses because that's just not what we do. Matt and I... Well, at least we try to pride ourselves on taking something huge and complex and instead of presenting it in that way, breaking it down into the core concepts that uh, will benefit you as somebody who's just interested in health or is an aspiring health professional or is an established health professional like you, Shannon. So thank you very much. We have a question here from Monica. Hello, exclamation mark. Firstly, I'm a student dietitian at Griffith. Well, Griffith, uh, that is the university that you work at, Matt, and my prior employer. You're still adjunct. I am. I, I, I love Griffith. Uh, uh, and uh, was listening to a podcast and sucrose malabsorption was mentioned. Yes, indeed. I wondered how much knowledge either of you had in this area uh, as I have a primary deficiency of sucrose, maltose, lactose and can't have starch. I'd love to have a conversation if you're available, interested or have time. Um uh, uh, thank you and no worries if you're not interested. Have a great Christmas. So this must have been sent just before Christmas. Monica, unfortunately, we can't get back to you personally just because of the multitude of questions that we have and hopefully it's okay that we respond via the podcast. So I can't remember what podcast we spoke about uh, sucrose deficiency or f- sucrose malabsorption. Are we gastro, a digestive one? Possibly, but it has to do with me. So Matt mentioned... You personally? Me personally. Matt mentioned at the start of the podcast uh, that I'm a hypochondriac. Did you say I'm I'm deficient? Well, I'm a hypochondriac, did you say? Yeah, I did. Right? So um, no, I'm not a hypochondriac. However, I have had gastrointestinal disorders, like many of you out there, for many, many years. Uh, And in order for me to get an appropriate diagnosis, you need to do an endoscopy and a colonoscopy to check it out. So I had an endoscopy colonoscopy and they said everything looks great. In actual fact, it's the best colon I've ever seen, they said. And I, I said, that's weird, Don't, didn't need that feedback. But, it's, you know, but the symptoms were still there and it really didn't help. So I said, okay, I need another, this was a few years later, I need another endoscopy colonoscopy, but I want you to take a biopsy of my duodenum and I want you to measure the enzymes of my small intestines that are used to break down all the important macronutrients for absorption. Did you ask for this? I asked for this. I was what explicit. made you ask for this? Because... Did you do some research? Well, it's... One of the things about being or doing what we do is that we're very lucky that we have some know-how, as in we have sort of like, mind the pun, backdoor entry <laughs> to this sort of knowledge, Right. So I knew that my small intestines uh, have what we call brush border enzymes. So they have cells that produce enzymes that break down nutrients, particularly carbohydrates. Particularly disaccharides. The big long sugars, yeah. uh, And break them down into absorbable nutrients. So it breaks down the disaccharides into monosaccharides because we can only absorb the monosaccharides. And and the monos are uh, glucose, fructose, and galactose. That's right. They're the monosaccharides. And so I was thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe I've got an... Because what I was personally noticing 
was that I was developing nausea after certain meals. And I noticed that they were the meals that tended to be dense on carbohydrates. Now, I didn't get sick. I wasn't having diarrhea. Um, I wasn't, uh, you know, rushing to the toilet or anything like that. I did get bloating and I got nausea. And, you know, I put two and two together and thought, well, maybe because I went to a dietitian because they said, you got IBS, you got irritable bowel syndrome, right? This is the blanket coverage that we're going to say. It's it, IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So is that IBS just basically saying um, uh, we don't really know? In a way, yes. I mean, it is a diagnosis. It is a condition. However, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. Okay. And so what that means is that once they do the endoscopy, colonoscopy and go, look, we can't see anything sinister here that would cause these symptoms, but we're going to say it's IBS because there's a neurological component to IBS. There's a component that you can't necessarily objectively measure very well outside of symptomatology. Okay. Right? Broadly, there are some things, but it's a diagnosis mostly of exclusion. And they said, you got IBS. And I went, fine. So I went and I saw a dietitian. And the dietitian's like, okay, here's your FODMAP diet, right? So that's an acronym. What's it stand for? Oh, gosh. Uh, FODMAP. F- fermentable. Oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide. Po- polyphenols or something. Polyphenols, yeah. Something like that. Basically. Any, any carbohydrate that you're not absorbing. Mostly fermentable carbohydrates. Ends up, ends up in your large intestine. And then the bacteria have a field day with it. That's right. And, and so the point is, if you avoid the foods on the FODMAP, uh, you should be able to avoid the biggest triggers for your IBS. So I did that. It made no difference, right? It made no difference because there were foods on there that I could eat, you know, huge amounts of and be absolutely fine. And there were foods that weren't in the FODMAP that if I ate a little bit of it, I'd feel sick. So I went back for another endoscopy, colonoscopy, and said, do a biopsy, please. So they did a duodenal biopsy, and what they do when they do this is I ask for them to measure the enzymes that break down these sugars, specifically the brush border enzymes that break down the disaccharides, which is sucrose, lactose, and maltose, that breaks it down into those monosaccharides that you mm-hmm. said, which is glucose, galactose, and fructose. So they measured it, and they afterwards gave me the report. And it said that, like most people on the planet, my lactase, the enzyme that breaks down lactose, the main sugar in milk, for example, it's, it's pretty low, right? Not crazy low, but it's pretty low. Um, Is that why you, you have short macchiatos? Uh, one of the reasons why I have a short macchiato. Uh, but I, I still have ice cream and stuff. It's not a huge deal, except as we we're going to find out in a second. Um, maltase, fine, right? Okay. Uh, so that's why you eat a lot of Milo. <laughs> sucrase. Sucrase is the enzyme that breaks down table sugar, basically. Uh, and what I found here now, so here's the thing uh, maltose. So, the, uh, let me le- just. Leading up to this point, this is where for morning tea, you used to chew on sugar cane. <laughs> That's, yeah. Chew on, chew, have five bananas and chew on some sugar cane. So, just remember this, right? There's maltose, sucrose, and lactose, they're the disaccharides. The enzyme maltase will break down maltose into two glucose molecules. That gets absorbed. The enzyme sucrase breaks down sucrose into one glucose and one fructose. That gets absorbed. And the enzyme lactase breaks down lactose into one glucose and one galactose. Yeah. That gets absorbed. Okay, that's just so everyone's got 
full understanding. They measured the sucrase and it was crazy low, right? And the gastroenterologist said, look, it's not super common, but you just don't have any sucrase. So your problem is you can't break down these uh, disaccharides basically the disaccharides you get in the sugar that's added to most food products, mm. and that's why you're feeling sick. I cut those types of sugars not out completely because you don't need to, but out predominantly, and it's fixed my personal issue. So do Hence, you still do that in your diet? So you can sort of do, um, yes, I would say that most of those sugars are cut out, but I still eat them, and it's fine if I do it as once-offs. So if you sort of... Again, I'm talking anecdotally here just from my experience. If I don't have a lot of it over time, I can then have a big bowl of ice cream and be fine. But if I had a small bowl of ice cream every day, I'd feel sick by the end of the week. So it's almost like I'm guessing <coughs> I'm, I'm guessing with the enzymes, I could be wrong Sorry. here, but I'm guessing with the enzymes within the cells the cells within the brush border, yeah. So the the villi, microvilli, yeah. of your small intestine, they would be in granules, so they'd be preformed. Mm. And so, I guess what you're saying here is, when exposed to um, this disaccharide, yeah, they're preformed enough to deal with that initial bombardment. But if you were to do it commonly, like continuously, yeah, it would become It'd run out of them. In a way. And then it, I mean, that's sort of how I see it. And then it wouldn't have enough and then you lead to the malabsorption of them and then the downstream effects of that. Yes. Yeah. So that seems to be what happens for me. Um, so this sort of is, is coming off the back of the question um, that so we had from, from Monica. So with this intolerance or deficiencies, yes. they could be broken in down into two types. And I think she alluded to being primary. Right, so there, there could know. be a primary. I, I think she, she, I think she said that in a question. Oh, okay. Um, primary deficiency of sucrose. Yeah. So that would basically mean that there is a deficiency. Yeah. Of creating the enzyme to begin with. Yes, and I think that's what's happening with me because I have no discernible cause that's resulting in fewer sucrase yep. or less sucrase. Whereas a enzymes. secondary cause would be something else is happening in the gastrointestinal tract, let's say. so Chronic inflammation maybe that's yeah. then causing so all, that. Say so someone might have celiac disease, yep. which has caused inflammation, yep. which is then or causing... Or Crohn's. Yeah. Yep. Now, a good example is the lactose intolerance. So yeah. we all... Now, there may be, there's probably exceptions to this, but we are all born um, with the ability to break down milk and that's what we drink for the first couple of years of our life yeah. is either from the mother for first 15 or from, years for you. <laughs> from the mother. Your poor mum. <laughs> from the mother or the from, why you weren't super or popular from the school. From the, t- <laughs> from the tin. Um, but we we have that lactase. Is that what you called it, from the tin? <laughs> Your mother would have been too impressed <laughs> referring to it like that. From the, from, uh, anyway, lactose. Lactase is produced enough to break down the lactose. Yeah. Now, as you alluded to, as we get older, we start to move into a primary defic- deficiency yeah. where as adults we lose that ability. Now, the, if you look at the whole world, I think it's something crazy like 60% of the world is lactose intolerant as adults. Yeah. Um, certain locations is a lot higher. So something like 100% of South Koreans are lactose intolerant. Wow. 
Whereas I think that... That's nearly everyone. That's nearly everyone. Whereas if you go to, I think, Eastern Europe, they possibly do a bit better with it. Wow. Some locations. But at saying that, I think there's certain dairies where if you uh, process it in a certain way, the lactose somewhat disappears. Yes. Like cheese maybe. Yes, so certain types of cheese. Yeah. 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 So, but also you'll probably find that some milk drinks now... Uh, like chocolate milk drinks contain lactase. Yeah, and if you've had that, so even lactose-free milk, yeah. it's not lactose-free per se. It's just milk with the enzyme chucked into it. Yes, that's why it can sometimes taste sweeter. It tastes sweeter. So you've already broken it down, or the, sorry, the milk has already been broken down mm. into its monosaccharides, yeah. so glucose, garlic toast, and that's what makes it taste sweet because yes. your receptors on your tongue can only taste monosaccharides, not, That's right. not dye or polysaccharides. Yes. And there is a pan deficiency. So some people who can't, who don't have any of those enzymes, right? And so treatment-wise, there's, there's not a great deal. There's some uh, sort of like enzyme drinks that you can take, uh, like we were talking about with the lactase, that, pe- that people add that enzyme to certain drinks. There is a sucrase version I've never had it. I don't even know if it's available in Australia. I know it is in the US. Um, but you can take that uh, if you're going to have huge amounts of sucrose. But for me, I just avoid the and I wonder if that, sucrose as possible. I wonder if that would be similar to individuals that had, say, a condition like um, cystic fibrosis where they've lost the ability of the um, pancreas to secrete their digestive enzymes and they have to take the enzymes with the food. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I know that, that, yeah, you can have that oral replacement that helps. It's called uh, sacrosidase. But I've never had the sacrosidase, so I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to add there? No, I mean, like, this is definitely not our area. No, uh, no This is no, definitely going not. into dietetics and nutrition, which M- Monica spoke about. But yes. working from first principles. That's right. We kind of done as best we can. <coughs> I do apologise about this cough. I'm trying to get rid of it. Um, Matt, do you have any other? I've got one more question here. So, do you have any other feedback for us? Uh, I just need to open it. Anything? Uh, anything to me personally? Anything? Say, Michael. Thank you so much. We hope that one day you decide to just not bring Matt onto the podcast and just do it yourself. Oh my god, the dream. Anyway, sorry. Go on. <laughs> All right, so Carly, we've got a an email from Carly. Yep. So Carly says, hello, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. I just wanted to reach out and say I love the podcast. I'm going back to school to pursue my RNs. Nice. And I've just finished... As registered nurse. I've just... Thank you. I've just finished taking AMP. That's anatomy physiology. Thank you. Um, I got 100 in the class. Whoa. Now, I'm assuming it was out of 100. Yes, not out <laughs> not of 700. <laughs> I supplemented my studying... With your podcast and found it super helpful. You guys are entertaining and smart. Which one's which? <laughs> I'm looking forward to AMP2 next semester and more podcast episodes. Brilliant. Sincerely, Carly from Upstate New York. How cool. Do you know How where Upstate cool. New York is? Uh, Could be Buffalo. So if you know New York, <laughs> just go up. Just go up the state from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hopefully you had a... I've um, never been Upstate New York. Have you? Yep. Really? Where'd you go? I used to be a uh, ski instructor in that region of New England. Really? Yep. So, like, w- it would upstate so, New York be? Uh, Buffalo, as yeah. an example. Okay, but where but, else? Uh, 
Albany, Albany, yeah. Albany. That's the capital of New York. Well, what about New England? I'm not sure if that. Well, New England is the whole region, so yeah. that's like Massachusetts, Connecticut. But that's upstate New York. No, New York is the state. Oh, upstate, because the the state kind of goes up towards so Canada. So, upstate New York, an actual place, or just a no, way no. that they describe? I think it's a description of Ignorant direction. Australians direction. I'm guessing that's true. So it'd be like a bit like saying southeast Queensland, southeast or north Queensland. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's so awesome. upstate, upstate uh, Queensland. Yes. Well, that's we've just had a couple of cyclones well, up, upstate and upstate Queensland uh, probably is as big as California. It's huge, right? Huge. Bigger. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Carly. That's awesome. Uh, we've got another message here from Hein. Hi, I love your podcasts. My image analogy for immune system information passing is not phoning, implies today often wireless and inside body, nothing works wireless, but paper notes and messengers happily bumping into each other. They are passing some notes with each bump between one another, which implies some kind of flow and bumping body contacts. So they're saying that when it comes to the immune system, I assume things like um, cytokines and the complement pathway and when you've got helper cells with B cells and so forth, that they're saying that as they move through, they sort of pass a note to somebody saying, okay, hey, it's your job now to do this. And then they go open it up, oh, I now need to do this, which I think is a really great way of thinking about it. Mm. To me, that explains why moving uh, my ass or that of others is such a great thing. Uh, uh, HTH, what's HTH? HTH and Happy New Year to all down underlings. I like that, down underlings. Hein, thank you so much, Hein. That's wonderful. Very nice. And I think that's a great analogy. Mm. It's a great way of looking at it. Maddie, what do you got? You want to do another one? Okay. Yeah, do another one. This is from Nelson. Love the podcast, gents. Been listening to it for over a year now. I was wondering if there was any in-depth content about sepsis being considered. I'm not. If, if not. not, I'd recommend it, lol. Thank you for what you guys do and happy holidays. Um, it's a good idea. We haven't done an episode on sepsis. We should. We have sepsis. No, do we have sepsis? No, that's shock. Yes, I always think about when I read sepsis, I always think shock. Um, we've done a, I did a video on shock. I think we did a podcast on shock too. But we haven't done one on sepsis, which is just uh, infection in the blood, right? So that's a good idea. We should talk about that because there's a whole bunch of things that can happen. Uh, let's put that on the list, Matty. It's a, long, um, it's a long list. Now I've got a question here. This is our final question uh, for at least today's episode uh, from Robert. Robert says, hi, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. I enjoy your video podcasts, in particular the depth of your subjects. Although you have done a podcast relating to blood pressure, you don't seem to have done anything related to blood pressure variations, just on what regulates blood pressure and causes of high and low blood pressure. Now, I was sure that we did one that spoke about the blood pressure equation and mm-hmm. all the various variables that if you tweak one, it increases and yep. tweak the other. So Robert is talking about uh, his own blood pressure over a 22-day period and talking about the variations that occurs. So the fact that he can have quite significant variations in his blood pressure. He said that some health experts say that at least 25% of adults have chronic hypertension, uh, though the uh, above shows wide variations all the time. So should it be classified as chronic if naturally occurring in 25% of adults? Well, chronic is not necessarily about how many people are affected, but how long over time it's affected. And while you might have variations in the blood pressure, if it's consistent over time to be elevated, whether there is, do, you know, drops or not, 
it can be classified as, as a hypertension. Um, you've stated that although the kidneys perform the primary function of blood pressure control, since it requires, prefers a fairly constant value for effective filtration, it is difficult to establish how fast is that control, effectively real-time control or more slow. Um, so uh, basically, uh, it's, uh, uh, he says, because it's quite a long email, um, from your video podcast, uh, the body seems to have a number of mechanisms for sensing and regulating blood pressure. Apart from the kidneys, there are sensors in the veins and the neck monitoring blood pressure in the brain. Uh, what gives a high-speed response to change the volume of blood in the circulation so hormones to change potassium and salt levels won't have sufficient time to have had an effect? Basically, um, any information on this can be useful. So Robert has mentioned a whole bunch of different what very nicely has actually summarised the uh, underlying physiology of what can change around blood pressure and has basically asked what is going to result in changes in blood pressure in real time, quick changes in blood pressure, and then how this can possibly manifest as long-term blood pressure. And I would like to go back to the blood pressure equation and the blood pressure equation, which everybody should know, is blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance, which is sometimes termed peripheral vascular resistance. Now, this may not mean much for people, but what it means is this. You've now got two factors that can affect blood pressure that are multiplied by each other. If you increase one or the other, you increase blood pressure. You decrease one or the other, you decrease blood pressure. Now, the two factors I said were cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. Simply put, cardiac output is the amount of blood your heart pumps out every minute uh, beat. Minute. That's stroke volume. Well, I'll, I was talking about the two factors that affect cardiac oh, output. Oh, sorry. So it's how much blood your heart pumps, heart pumps out with each beat multiplied by how many beats per minute. Mm. But, yes, ultimately it's how much blood your heart pumps out every minute. So the factors that affect this have to do with how much blood is filling your heart, right? So how much blood is entering your heart. The more blood that enters, the more blood that gets ejected. That increases cardiac output. Yep. That increases blood pressure. Yep. Uh, the How forceful your heart contracts, the more forceful, the more that gets ejected, the more blood pressure. How many times it contracts, the more the beat, the, the, the greater the amount of beats, the more cardiac output, the greater the blood pressure, right? Um. Uh, and they're pretty much the main factors that affect that, right? Yeah. Now, the other variable is systemic vascular resistance, sometimes termed peripheral vascular resistance. There's a number of three main factors that affect this, but the most clinically relevant one is simply the diameter of your blood vessels. If your blood vessels are constricted, so narrowed, it's harder for the blood to move through. The blood backs up. If the blood backs up, then your heart has to work harder to overcome it that increases blood pressure. Think about putting your thumb on the end of a hose that you've turned on. The water spurts out because the water backs up and the pressure increases. Mm. So that's the same thing with blood pressure. If you relax your blood vessels, the resistance goes down and blood pressure goes down. At the end of the day, all of these varying factors that we've just mentioned can be addressed through blood pressure medications, antihypertensives, and they are. So we can alter the volume of blood in the body through diuretics, which yeah. alters the amount of blood re-entering the heart and can be ejected. You can alter the contractility of the heart 
using uh, calcium channel antagonists. You can play around with the way that the sympathetic nervous system innovates the heart to tell it to contract harder or faster. You can block those. You can block the kidney's ability to change the blood volume a multitude of ways through ACE inhibitors or angiotensin yeah. receptor blockers. Uh, you can even change the diameter of your blood vessels, again, through calcium channel antagonists and other various medications. So... So I think going back to yes. what you explained with the formula, yes, that is constantly being modified yep. depending on what the requirements of the body yep. is going through. And so you're going to be going through acute fluctuations of blood pressure all the time. Mm-hmm. And probably in most cases it's, an, it's appropriate to the situation you're in. Yes. If you're exercising, your blood pressure is going to be high. That's right. If you are a little bit stressed... And that could be emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, mentally. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily physically. It also will go up yep. because it's intertwined with the autonomic nervous system, yes. which plays a, a profound role. Even, say, hydration status because the kidneys, as you've mentioned, plays a very important role with regulating. So even how much fluid the kidneys is re- uh, receiving yep. is going to play a role. Now, when you spoke about chronic uh, blood pressure... That is really the definition of hypertension. Yes. Where you've got repeated recordings of blood pressure over periods of time um, because to, di- to diagnose hypertension, which is high blood pressure, you need to visit a primary care physician a number of times mm-hmm. and it needs to be over a certain number yeah. to be then diagnosed with hypertension. That's right. So that kind of in itself is chronic, right? Yes. And so then... Um, you would the doctor if you were diagnosed with hypertension the doctor would need to try to <coughs> ascertain what would be the underlying cause <coughs> or reason for that hypertension yes in most cases we don't know like 95% yeah. of the cases we don't have an underlying guaranteed mechanism mm. and that's why it's termed primary or essential yeah. because we just aren't 100% sure what it is. Yes. But yeah. can I just quickly but, jump in because you made a point that I want to really hammer home because Robert's talking about, you know, these all these different things that can happen in the body that we've spoken about that um, that can acutely change the blood pressure like, very quickly. And I think it's important to just highlight the fact that short-term changes in blood pressure aren't the worry. No. Right? It's the long-term chronic elevation that's the worry. And the reason why is... Particularly at a very, well, once it's getting to a, a level that becomes damaging to end organs. Yes. I mean, I know I use the analogy of a hose and that falls short in a number of different ways because hoses aren't dynamic and blood vessels are. But if you were to use your hose once a week and, you know, sometimes you have the pressure low because you're just watering a, a plant right next to you and sometimes you've got to crank it up really high to hose a plant that's further away... It doesn't damage the hose wall because you're just doing it acutely. Short term, turn it off. But if you were to leave your hose on full ball all the time and block the end of it, right, so the pressure remains high and increase in the hose, you're going to likely burst something. Something's going to get yeah. damaged. And that's that's the issue here. And so, and especially if you didn't look after the hose, yes. which is the health side of things. So if you left it, <laughs> left it in the sun, yes, yes, r- yes. run over it every day in your um, yep. car, yep. like you're causing damage to the vessel, it's deteriorating and yes. then superseding on top of that 
the high blood pressure, yes. then you're leading to complications associated with it. Yes. And look, our, our blood pressure must, like you said, must change quickly in response to certain things. If you go for a run or go into the gym, if you were to measure your blood pressure, for example, I spoke at the beginning that I did huge amounts of deadlift, deadlifts the other week, huge amounts because I'm powerhouse. Just anyway, um, if you were to measure my blood pressure during or immediately after that and you looked at it, you would go, wow, if that was my blood pressure all the, all the time, time. So that would be called chronically. Yeah. I would have a significant issue, yeah, right? that's right. But it's not. It's about the fact that it needed to go up to feed the tissues of all my muscles specifically so that I could perform that work. So I just want... Just, I think just, also to add with that, yeah. um, when you are doing things like exercise, I'm guessing here, and this is a, a bit of working from first principles, is that your blood vessel um, also knows, and it's probably from an endocrine point of view, that, okay, I'm exercising here, I would expect my blood pressure to go up yep. and the the muscles and the wall of the vessel is in a state that it is allowing the blood pressure to be higher without causing injury to it. But if you're in a resting state where you are watching TV on the couch, your blood vessel is being told separately, hey, we're at a resting state here, but mm. I've got a blood pressure of 180 that is then causing injury onto the, the blood vessel wall because it's not really receptive to, to be re having this pressure in it at that point in time. Yes, and we need to remember that, you know, when you perform exercise, it is a form of stress to the body. And when you stress the body, you activate the sympathetic nervous system, which releases adrenaline, and adrenaline will constrict your peripheral blood vessels, which increases blood pressure, and it will dilate the blood vessels at your muscles. So we get more blood redirected to your muscles at a higher pressure. But following that, we also have certain chemicals released that help in that vasodilatory effect mm. at the muscles like prostaglandins and nitric oxide, which you did mention, Robert, in, in the tests, which tend to uh, stay in the system longer than the period of exercise or stress lasts. And this is one of the reasons why exercise long-term is good for blood pressure uh, is because of those chemicals remaining in the system after the stress stressful event. Yeah. So your blood pressure can remain low for up to 24 to 48 hours after the exercise because of those chemicals. So, uh, you know, while you're referring to all these different things that can happen and you're trying to sort of figure out, you know, how quickly do all these different events occur, uh, it's, it's tricky to say because they don't necessarily happen sequentially but simultaneously at different rates. That's right. I would say with confidence that the fastest way that blood pressure is altered is through the blood vessels, right? Systemic vascular resistance because of adrenaline that's released into the system will change the dilatory and constrictory effects of your blood vessels very quickly, particularly those of the arterioles. But then there's a flow-on effect also that happens with that because when cortisol is released and you've stimulated the adrenal gland and cortisol is released, not only does that happen, but you release aldosterone and that re results in fluid retention, which further increases blood pressure. But remember, you're not just, you can't look at all these events happening in isolation because aldosterone increasing fluid reabsorption is occurring at the same time that you've got vascular constriction, maybe a little bit after, but again, they compound each other in regards to these events. So 
when we talk about like um, uh, hypertension, uh, such as like something like resistant hypertension, individuals might take three or more. So that's the definition of it. They have to have at least three medications on board. Yes, and the blood pressure is still high. So, you know, they might be a blood pressure med that's playing around with the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So it might be an ACE inhibitor, it might be an ARB, it might be angiotensin receptor blocker, it might be a calcium antagonist, it might be a diuretic, right? Or beta blocker. Or beta blocker. And basically what they're doing here is going, look, we don't necessarily know what's causing the hypertension, but we know that, we know the equation. And this would be the primary like or essential hypertension where we don't know. If if there was an understanding that it was secondary, that mm. we knew that there was something like a tumour on your adrenal glands or there was a stenosis in your renal artery, mm. then that would be addressed first. Yes. But in these cases we don't know. We just know the blood pressure is high. Yes. So we, we know just the need pathways to, right. that feed into those equations. So let's now throw a medication at each one of these pathways that converge on increased blood pressure, renin angiotensin aldosterone system, contractility, dilatory constrictory effects, and fluid volume. And then... And contractility if, of heart. Did you yeah, say that? Yeah, I did, yes. Okay. And so, but then if none of these work, then it's one of those things where it's just like, okay, so is the issue the uh, blood pressure equation and is, is the issue not getting addressed because the medications aren't addressing the appropriate factor or is it because the medications aren't being adhered to appropriately or the quantity or dose of the medications aren't appropriate? Or is it because additional environmental factors uh, are not uh, uh, negatively affecting what's going on? You know, like, for example, and uh, this is not the be-all, end-all, but as an example, um, salt intake, exercise, sleep patterns, you know, things, things like that, you know, so diet, exercise, lifestyle choices, right? Yeah. So all of these things must be looked at and addressed to understand exactly what are the factors and how are they feeding into the situation. Yeah. Alrighty. Uh, hopefully that helps you, Robert. I'm sorry that we couldn't give you more specific. Again, Matt and I can't give specific information. We can't talk about your specific case. We don't. We don't know. And your the other case. thing, just to add a, a little bit of uh, complexity to it, yeah. there's also the the white coat phenomenon as well. So yes. if you are taking your blood pressure in by a, a physician or by a primary care physician, that just by that, that nature could be boosting your blood pressure up and so it's kind of a false positive. But generally by definition, resistant hypertension oh, resistant, is defined yes. yep. once that's excluded, yep. right? Um, so hopefully that helps, Rob. But again, so people know uh, we're not here to uh, help with individual cases. We're not qualified to do that. Legally and ethically, we cannot do that, nor do we want to do that. That's not our focus or our job. What we want to do is help upskill people in understanding how the body works. Is that fair to say? Yes. Let's have right. one more. I let's bet. have one more. We've got three more. I know, but we can only do one more due to time. We can read those other ones in the next one. All right, you can read this one. Then, okay, so it's... this one is from <laughs> Bianca. Bianca said, did, oh, did Dr. Mike 
Just to me. There we go. That's why I gave it to you. Oh, okay. Uh, Dear Dr. Mike, I want to express my sincere gratitude as a 45-year-old studying paramedicine through distance learning. The online format at times requires a significant amount of self-teaching. My bioscience classes consist of a weekly 1.5-hour Zoom session where the lecture often involves reading through slides. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry about that. Unfortunately, I frequently find myself leaving these classes without gaining much knowledge as the content feels like a bunch of unfamiliar words being dictated to me. Tell me about it. This is why we do what we do, right? So I can dictate to people. (laughs) Being a visual learner, your YouTube videos have been a game changer for me. Thank you so much. I really, truly love this type of feedback. I've been following your channel for a year now and I generally believe that that if I successfully navigate through this degree, it will be because of what I've learned from you. How nice is that? That's very nice. Your teaching style and content have made complex topics more understandable and engaging. This hasn't gone unnoticed by my peers. When they seek help within our group of ambulance community officers, 10 of us volunteering casual for AV, I often suggest watching your videos. Uh, I'll be anchor. Um, I want to extend... A huge thank you. I've recently signed up and I undoubtedly will be relying on your videos to guide me through the next three years of my study. Kind regards. How how awesome. That's so nice. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to quickly say Caroline and Anna also said thank you so much. Um, And Anna in particular said you've got a good uh, video on the... uh, I do. Bra- break or, your plexus. Or she wants one or I do. No, she said one. you've got a good one on the break your plexus, oh, okay. but we need to do one on the other plexuses, such as the, the lumbar sacral. That's your job. That's yeah. that's your job, anatomy boy. So that's Anna thank and you, Caroline. Anna. And Caroline. Caroline says thank you for the free so we, videos. We got them all in. Did in you see how I did school? that? You did. Yeah, you didn't like Wait, that. I just want to finish what Caroline said. I'm in nursing school and your videos are what have helped me pass my exams and classes so far. Thank you so much, Caroline. That's super kind. And Anna. Uh, and Anna, we really, and Bianca, we really appreciate this feedback. Uh, it does feed our egos, but at the same time... Fires your ego. It, it, it really qualifies what we're doing, right? It really just solidifies the reason why we're doing it. Uh, it is for free. It is for you. Uh, and if you do like it, share it with your friends. And let us know how this particular session works. Are you happy with having a devoted session to answering questions. Session, you're such a teacher. Podcast, video. Podcast. Yes, people love it. Send us your questions. Again, don't make them medical. If they are medical, no, we're make, just make them medical, but we just oh, can't yeah. give you prescriptive answers. Yeah, we can't give you medical advice. We can, <laughs> we can skirt around it and give you the underpinnings. The anatomy and physiology. But we, and the pharmacology, pathophysiology. Yes. We can't say this is the amount of dose that you need to take. No. You can't, you know do this amount of sunlight with this amount of um, ice women. Yes. No, no. We're definitely not going to tell you uh, how, how long you should stare into the sun for and how long you should delay your coffee for. No protocols from us. Uh, but thank you, Matthew, and thank you, listeners. Uh, we love you all. Uh, we appreciate you. Send us an email. Uh, go to drmatdrmike.com.au and you can follow us on social media at Dr. Mike Todorovic, which is just me, uh, on all social media platforms. Thank you, Matt. And tune in next week for um, Michael's new element. Uh, yes, I'll let you know what new condition uh, I've been screened for. So thank you and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 